Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Cinematic Release Podcast of Phantom Mentals. Uh, I'm joined today, as always, by my co-host, Thad. Say hello. Salutations. <laughs> today we're going to be talking about the difference between adult and mature, and basically variations on that theme. Uh, Thad, since it's basically your idea, why don't you tell me the definition of adult and mature? There isn't one. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for thanks for joining us today. Uh, <laughs> roll credits. Um, no. Uh, well, that's that's the thing is that like adult, mature, like these things as descriptors, I find uh, in a lot like they're they're very slippery terms. Uh, yeah. In a lot of my uh, like my, my when I think of these terms. I think of a running gag that that I had with some friends back in the day, where basically uh, anything would become creepy if you put the word "adult" in front of it. <laughs> like, oh, and, and like uh, an adult restaurant or uh, like adult parking service. Wait, what? Um, and also the fact that, that mature, when talking about rating systems, like mature is is something that like is a rating in video game culture. Right. Uh, it's also and... a rating in movies as well. Oh, yeah, it is, isn't it? I always forget that. Um... They got rid of the X and made it mature. Ah, right. Uh, and it means the opposite of what we as a culture think maturity means. <laughs> really uh, like, straight up. Like, when I, when I think of mature, I think of, like, I think of either, like, McFarlane comics uh, or, like, trauma movies. Right. <laughs> like, well, like, mature like, I, I doesn't... Can... It's hard for me to think of a game rated mature that I didn't look at and go, yep, an adult would totally want to play this. <laughs> right. Because, like, it's the idea of maturity, is, like, in that sense, in the rating sense, is, like, the 13-year-old's idea of maturity or right. humor or whatever. It doesn't mean, like, the ability to deal with complex and often <laughs> contradictory realities of existing in the world as it exists. Well, but it means we have dicks and butts, and that is mature. <laughs> well, on top of that, it's like it's funny, like the difference between how like some people say adult and adult. And <laughs> right. I find when people say adult, they actually are talking about adult themes. Yeah, like the the pronunciation has started to become uh, like there's a me- there's a there's a meaningful distinction because I, I I absolutely agree. I, I hadn't really thought of that, but the instant that you said it, I was like, oh shit, he's right. Because, yeah, uh, if someone says, oh, it's an adult idea, like, that doesn't mean uh, my previous thing of dicks and butts. It means, (laughs) it means, like, something else. Like, it means that that the, I think, if we talk about something having adult themes, our minds will drift more in the direction of, like, independent films or things like that. Well, those are, one of the critics I follow, Ben Mankiewicz, oftentimes he'll be talking about a movie, and and if he really likes it, he'll say, this is a film for adults. Meaning it's not going to end in what we commonly see movies end with, which is a giant superhero punch fight right. or an action scene. It's going to be a movie that has themes of such that are a little bit complex to be summed up in a word. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, that, that kind of distinction, I think, often develops just accidentally in the fact that we know we want to have a distinction. Because uh, right. I've, I've been accused of this a few times before in that, like, the the things I will refer to as films versus the things I will refer to as movies often accidentally, <laughs> well, uh, like or not 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 necessarily accidentally because when I think about it, it's like no, I I kind of do on some level mean to be doing this, right? But well, I don't 
looking to be. <laughs> I think that stems from Kevin Smith started doing that. He had a thing yeah. about he called certain things movies and certain things films. And as I get older, I'm like, no, that's BS. I don't believe in doing that. <laughs> yeah, like I, I feel like it's it's an attempt to reach toward that same distinction between right. adult and adult. But I think when you do it without considering what you're doing, then yeah, you end up in the Kevin Smith realm of of sort of doing this at a very still at a very surface level. Right, because there are some movies that Kevin Smith has done that are very adult. And then yeah. there are some, most of his are kind of mature. <laughs> yeah, most. Most, really, <laughs> being honest. Because, uh, yeah, I still, have a, I still have a deep affection for Clerks because I can't help it. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it, it really, t- like, it, it, it does a lot of uh, mature things. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's one of the things where we're getting into one of the other variations of this. The confusion is what it means to be adult is the fact that if it's grimdark, which the site has talked about a lot. Right. Or the sort of like deeply cynical idea of a store. It's like, well, that must be, it's, a, it's an adult reading, it's a mature reading, this is something not not meant for the common plebeian. This is something that's mm. intellectually engaging with the store. I'm like, no, sometimes it's just a pessimist. Yeah. Like the that, that idea of like darkness with reality. Right. Uh, like because it's grimmer and you know more bloody and rapey, therefore it's <laughs> a, a greater reflection of reality, which is really it's it's a very reactionary mode because like it's if you look at I mean grimdark to me I always associate that with comics is where I first came across that term and then tabletop gaming also as well uh, and then I I started to apply it more to movies like I came at it in that direction but it's you know it's that descriptor is indicative of a lot of things that sort of happen in parallel in different forms of media. Oh, absolutely. And I, th- and I think for me, a lot of it uh, in from from the comics perspective that I sort of initially came at it from, it's very much the, uh, you know, you look at the older comics, the the sort of uh, the, the very the very square jawed heroes yeah. hero silver age stuff, yeah, uh, and that people sort of becoming burnt out on that because of, you know, various reasons, both uh, just narrative exhaustion and, like, a lack of reflections of certain realities. But the the reaction against that was then seen as inherently more real when all it was really doing was doing things that hadn't been done. It was a question of novelty more than anything else. Uh, Novelty masquerading as reality. Well, as we talked about, like, the comic, uh, Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. Like, there are some that. themes that Deck grapples with that are legitimate, thing, like, complex themes, but most of it is just a whiny man, baby. Right. <laughs> right. And, and, like, that's the thing, is that when you haven't seen that before, and it's being shown in contrast to, like, the... It's often, you know, held up as the counterexample to 60s Batman, for example. Right. Uh, then, yeah, the, it, it, it sort of... By by that contrast, it sort of got to have the illusion of further depth. Right. Uh, it was like depth and depth as a con- as a consequence of juxtaposition more than as a consequence of the text itself, right. well, which I think is interesting. Um, the polar opposite of grimdark was cynicism. It's something that gets derided a lot, but when done right, it's kind of a work of art, and that's camp. Yeah. Like, but the, going back to the '60s Batman, when Batman, no, first when the Batman '60s Adam West show first started, 
I mean, even though most of it was run, it was pretty fucking... Like, it's ridiculous. It's camp, but it's, like, an art form of camp that we rarely see. Like, right. it went full on, well, and, and also, it made clear points about the culture. Yeah. And also, I mean, one of the things that... And I'm really glad this this conversation came up online in a few places, uh, you know, around the time Adam West passed away, right. um, was the fact that something that has been lost to history in that sort of postmodern way that we lose th- lose things is that 60s Batman was 100% in on the joke. Exactly! <laughs> like, people people today will wa- and be like, oh, it was so ridiculous. and did it. it was trying to be... <laughs> It was doing these things for narr- like for narrative reasons. Well, it's kind of like how when uh, people today go back and they watch old black and white movies, they go, oh my yeah. god, they are so stupid, they're so naive. I'm like, you don't think they know that? Right. Like, like the, the people in the... the past are only dumber than you because they're not alive right now. <laughs> Just because they don't know what a computer is doesn't mean they don't know what they're doing. Right. Uh, and, and yeah, a lot of so many things suffer from that kind of like presentist bias, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> uh, where where it's just like, oh, the uh, look how look how overly romantic they're being. You you really think they don't know they're doing that? Right, like, like what, well, sometimes what when it feels like maybe happening? they don't, but <laughs> like by and large, I feel like there's some benefit of the doubt that is often owed there, that, <laughs> or yeah, if not like, owed, at the very know... least. Like a history of a filmmaker that they tend to be doing this. Okay, yes. Okay, this filmmaker always does this. Kind of like how Luke Besson will always have a monologue about how love will conquer all. Right. So that's just like so when that pops up, it's like it's not an overly romantic thing. It's well, no, that's Luke Besson. That's that's the conversation is going to be in there. That seems to be part of his personal aesthetic. <laughs> uh, uh, that's just fine. what we're doing. Is there one of those in in Lucy? I haven't seen Lucy, so I don't know. Okay, neither have I. So we <laughs> we collectively opted out. I would not out. be shocked if Morgan Freeman has something along those lines. <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, I think Morgan Freeman sometimes just like has a briefcase full of those. <laughs> oh, you you need the uh, you need the uh, old man wisdom speech. Hold on, which one? I got the one on age. I have the one on regret, love. Oddly enough, I think nope, don't have one on race, but. Uh, if you need me to just be God again, I'm always ready for that. Uh, <laughs> but yes, so uh, yeah, I, I think one of the one of the most healthy perspectives to have on grimdark aesthetic is it's just anti-camp. That's it really all it is. is. And it's anti-camp in a way that is sort of like it doesn't even realize how shallow it's being. Yeah, and, and to be fair, oh well, to be fair to it as much as it can deserve, which isn't necessarily a lot. Uh, like the in and again, I I keep leaning on comics as examples because it's right. it's it's sort of where I think of it the most, not necessarily where it appears the most. But right. um, you know the 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 grim dark aesthetic in comics was inspired by a wave of really interesting and complex stories and and writers. Your Alan Moore's and your Niels Gaiman and uh, you know that I, I guess Frank Miller, uh, fine. Um, <laughs> But but like and then it took the essentially just the aesthetic trappings of it and moved forward in it like without really without really considering any of the further aspects well, like that that the that the surface itself was enough I think is is one of the because like I think there's value in a grim and dark aesthetic. Oh, absolutely. I don't, I don't think that's inherently valueless, but you know I think I think it's also pretty clear whenever we say gr- grim dark, there's like a little trademark symbol after it, like. 
I don't I don't believe that everything is is you know flowers and candy in reality. Right. Uh, well, though I do like both flowers and candy, but well, okay. Like I just saw a movie yesterday called Wind River. Okay. And it's a very grim movie. And that's a very serious movie, and it does deal with adult themes, and it is quite mature. Mm. And but the fact that like the mood fits the story, and I think that's what we're talking about is people seem to think the aesthetic itself is what justifies maturity or adultness. And really, it's whether or not the setting fits the story. Yeah. Like, uh, I think one of the big problems that I've seen in, in the, the, like, especially with the, the writers that I've taught in, like, introductory fiction writing classes, is not being able to synthesize the separate pieces that you are interested in. Right. Uh, like, being interested, it, like, it's perfectly fine to like a particular aesthetic, Right. And to want to tell a particular story, but there is work involved in getting those things to mesh, right. and not just things that you are throwing on a page. It's really hard to blend a story that doesn't necessarily go with the aesthetic. Mm. It's not uh, impossible. It's not but... impossible, but for example, we'll talk about we'll mention two movies we've talked about before: Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. Mm-hmm. Like the the idea is not a bad idea. It's just really badly done because he seems to think, "Oh yes, yeah, a given." No, no, no. Some of these things really don't go together. <laughs> yeah, uh, some of these things you do have, like especially. I think one of the one of the big traps uh, with the the DC movie universe, whatever it is, is how like mythic the characters they're dealing with are and how saturated they are in like the the popular subconscious because right. if you want to do your version of superman that is not the same as everyone's version of superman that's fine but that also means you have to do more groundwork right <laughs> uh you 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 have to set that up better because when given a blank space to fill, I will fill it with what I think of as Superman. <laughs> and I will fill it with what I think of as Batman. And that's going to cause some serious backlash. Like, in, not not backlash, whiplash in my head trying to make sense of these things. That's what's known as comic dissonance. <laughs> right. Uh, like, and, and if it were just the comics, it'd be bad enough. But you also have, like, the, the Donner Superman shadow right. cast in the direction of infinity that you will never escape and well, if you're going uh, and you need to if you're going to try and escape it you have to do the work <laughs> well, i don't know if we've talked about it before in this podcast but the dawn of superman when it was made it was 19 the late 70s yeah it was 79 70, so. 78, 78 79, 79 it was it was it was in the shadow of star wars it was right. like right there and star wars came out in 77 so it was at least a year or two after mm. um so, this is at a time when the world is in a very dark place. Nixon has just recently resigned from office. Uh, Vietnam had either, I think, was either coming to an end or it just ended. Riots were still going on in terms of the civil rights movement was coming towards an end. We're at the end of the free love movement just a little bit. And society isn't really geared towards the idea of Superman. Yeah, and so Richard the, the... Donner does something very brave, and he goes, "You know what? I'm going to do a optimistic, sincere Superman, because in Superman he says he believes in truth, justice, and the American way." At a time when those words 
could be and had been perceived as corny or outdated. Yeah. And uh, Andy sold it. He sold it. And because he is like, you know, I'm going to be sincere. And that's the uh, part of the thing is it's okay to be grimdark and cynical if you are sincere about it. But if you just use it as a sort of mood setting, it's going to come off as shallow. And it's going to come off as Watchmen, shall we say. Um, (laughs) Movie Watchmen, let's be clear. Because uh, uh, I and I, I had I had some affection for what Snyder was trying to do at the time, although I've right. soured like each time I've gone back to it, I've soured more and more. But it is, I think, that and three hundred are, I think, perfect examples of of what Snyder is good at. Which well, three hundred actually pulls off what it's trying to do really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, and it's it's just like taking static images from comics and making them very polished and real. Right. Well, actually, not real, completely unreal, but on a screen. Right. Uh, like it's it's that sur- it's that uh, real unreality that Snyder can do really well. Well, uh, I don't know if I, if you have that article I sent you about dystopians, uh, dystopian futures, and how they uh, when movies cinematically they tend to be primarily hetero- overwhelmingly heterosexual, white, and male. Yeah, the the very like uh, working class uh, dystopia. Right. Like. The- the, the male working class dystopia like the so that way all the all the good people are the the salt of the earth workers and all the bad people are the the effete uh, weirdos right but they're all also white so basically the working class that suffers suffers in a way that a lot of POC and the LGBTQIA community suffers now as is right. And so it's sort of this bizarre sort of like whitewashing that goes on just to get the aesthetic of Grimdark. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, Without it's, it's engaging with the actual idea that you're presenting. Right. Uh, the the here is here is what this suffering looks like. We're just going to put it here <laughs> and put it here on these people. Don't think about it. It's here. Right. It's fine. <laughs> well, uh, in a lot of ways, this carries over into the next thing about. Kids' movies, this is... My sister works at Children's Mercy. She works with burn victims and trauma victims. Oh, wow. She works with kids. And yet, whenever I try to bring up a Pixar movie, she's like, yeah, I don't watch those. I don't watch kids' movies. Oh. And I'm like, what? Oh. What is this weird thing? And I, she's not the only I didn't know that was still talking. possible. I didn't know that was still a possible response to Pixar movies. Oh, well, this is four or five years ago. It's a while ago. So I don't know if she still feels this, but I just remember being struck by the idea that someone who works with kids can be just so dismissive of things geared at kids. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Iron Giant is one of the best movies ever. (laughs) And it deals with the existence of a soul, personal responsibility of violence, jingoism, nationalism run amok. (laughs) Mm. And it has Vin Diesel. It does. Vin Diesel doing what he does best. Lending his voice to a disembodied creature. Vin, Vin Diesel, is, I, God, he's such a great voice actor that I, I don't necessarily don't want Vin Diesel to keep doing live action roles, but Vin Diesel should be voice acting all the time. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I mean, you get, you know, think about, uh, I don't know, there, there's something about that, like. There's a weird kind of freedom you get with certain like kids' movies when you do it well. I mean, this goes back to Don Bluth movies as well. Right. Um, uh, that 
like that and and i think you know one of the the ones that hit me the hardest in recent memory although pixar movies always bring the full punches i would say is still like find a person who has seen the movie up and <laughs> didn't have a visceral emotional reaction to the opening minutes of it and Those i will minutes are amazing like this is the new void comp test all right this is how <laughs> you find replicants <laughs> And it is, it is, it is completely like this is adult material. Like this is adult material. This right. is serious subject matter. This is loss and what it means to like be a family and make emotional connections and and even like I'm a, I'll, I'll do a, a Herzog reference and talk about like the burden of dreams because <laughs> that's that's really that's what Carl is dealing with. Like what he and his wife like what his wife wanted and how right. he wants to carry that forward and just god i love up why haven't i watched that recently i don't know i find that with a lot of movies man i love that movie i haven't seen that in years <laughs> right but still like that uh i think in a lot of ways uh, uh, pixar movies and movies that are pixar adjacent i guess if that is a thing um show how like movies made for kids get to do these sorts of things like you know i think back again like i think the don bluth example is there too like the the death of littlefoot's mother i'm not tagging that because if you haven't seen land before time you are either a literal child or a replicant (laughs) again another replicant death that is Um, actually a movie that i can't talk about because it is fail it's a fail safe to make a certain person that i love tear up oh okay that's fair um (laughs) apologies then uh but (laughs) but yeah i think the that that so like these actual adult like what we're the adult or or what i will refer to as the actual adult uh themes are super prevalent in well-made children's media right well there is a difference between like schmaltzy sort of insincere children's media where they're telling you like the lesson and they don't it's not earned or you can feel like they're just telling you a lesson because well a lesson needs to be in here yeah as opposed uh, to say something like um Wrecked Ralph yeah yeah if uh, you haven't which... seen Wrecked Ralph there's like a moment cause Pixar has a one problem in terms of like raising the stakes Wrecked Ralph has a moment like towards the last 30 minutes where they raise the stakes and they move the field. They they move the stakes further up, and it feels like so natural and great to the story. And at the time, it's like, oh my god, I understand where everyone is coming from. This is heartbreaking. Yeah, uh, they're making a sequel to that, aren't they? Apparently, yes. I haven't seen all. I've seen is a poster. Yeah, I. I mean, I don't know what. Yeah, I'm not going to go into uh, down that cul-de-sac, but just the sequel. Uh, anxiety is already like boiling <laughs> on that one because the first one was so good. Uh, ah. But uh, but like okay, listen, I'm going to give you a quote now from okay. Iron Giant. Going back to that, yes. Everyone wants what we have. And this is when Kent Mansley's going off on his rampage about why he wants the giant. Right. Everyone wants what we have, and he ends the monologue with, "All I know is we didn't make it." We didn't build it, and that's reason enough to assume the worst and blow it to kingdom come. Oh. That line uh, already, is It's more... already dealing with the themes that Batman v Superman wants to deal with and <laughs> does it so much better that it's it's painfully embarrassing. <laughs> it does it with the line, and, and then the, after the line, he has to go take a crap because Hogarth has basically laced his milkshake with laxatives. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. It's, it's a very serious moment which is undercut with humor, but the moment it doesn't take away from the moment. Uh. In fact, in a way, it actually sort of build, like sort of like cements the moment in your mind because right after it, there's a really good laugh, and you remember it because of the laugh. Right, and I, I think that's one of the things that that we see. Is I think Iron Giant is a great example of this because it something that that grimdark or mature or whatever things will carve out moments of levity or humor or like the or or, or just that that sphere of of existence. Right. Whereas whereas the you know Iron Giant is able to say like yes these these uh, like issues of of like paranoid nationalism <laughs> exist. <laughs> And also, children are here too, doing their ch- like operating on child logic, right? Uh, well, and like these, these things, like uh, are not disconnected. Well, and it's really important because that stuff stays with you. Like if movies as chi- movies that you see as a child, and I, I don't think this is news to anyone, stay with you. And there's some of them just like you, you have a fond memory of because you just happen to like it as a child. And like you go back and watch, you go, oh well, that's not too good. But then you have something like the uh, Secret of Nymph, mm. which I ha- I remember seeing. It's like one of the first images I remember seeing as a child. Oh on wow! The screen. That and Fox and the Hound. And I went back and watched it back when we lived in the studio, and I was shocked by how much I remember this movie I hadn't seen. Like just how much yeah. sense memory was involved. And I was shocked about what the movie was about because I didn't really remember what the movie was about. Like, oh my like you, god! You, you had a very, you had a very imagistic uh, memory of it that was very sharp, but like not the understanding. Right, and then I watched it. and I was like, holy crap! This is some really harsh. She's dealing with the death of an entire. Oh my god! And this is basically dealing with um, genocide to some degree. It's dealing with yep. cruelty to animals and animal testing. All that's on the surface, but it's also dealing with loss and. Displacement, like yeah, just trauma and attempting to to like survival. Uh, right. it, it just all these like cultural survival as well. <laughs> That's what, like, right. It's a very dark movie for a children's movie, and yet it never really feels like it never beats you over the head with the grimness of it. Right, because the grimness isn't the point. The grimness is just our emotional response to the things that are happening. Exactly. Like it's it's not it's not really I wouldn't call it a a, a grim uh, aesthetic movie. It's grim because of of the because of the realities of what it's dealing with. Well, uh, it's it's not a, it's not taking place in a world that is <laughs> that is grim and serious. It is taking place in a world, and grim serious things are happening. Right, and also as you talked about, like people want to go like I wanted to make it realistic. I want to make it like like real life. It's like, well, real life is funny sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes is this you laugh real and life? times you shouldn't have. It's... I'll go with the Bohemian Rhapsody thing of, is this the real life <laughs> or is this just fantasy? Well, perfect example. Um, the movie hasn't, like, the plot really hasn't aged well, but there's a, a line from uh, The Odd Couple with Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. Mm. It hasn't him. aged well, but I could watch either of those two men in anything <laughs> at any time. There's a moment in which uh, Oscar is kicking Felix out of the apartment. And Felix is arguing with him about he doesn't want to go, and Oscar's like, get out of my house, get out. And Felix's like, fine, I'll leave Oscar, I'll leave. But whatever happens, it's on your head. And Oscar's like, 
What? What is that? Oh, what is on my head? What is that? The curse of the cat people? Why can't you get thrown out like a decent human being? <laughs> and like the, it's stuck with him because yeah, no. Sometimes people say really melodramatic stuff in a heat of the argument. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes people like will just stop the argument. And go like, hold on, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Wait, where, where where did this go all of a sudden? <laughs> <laughs> Why can't you just take this like a fucking normal person? But like yeah, like um, I remember um, Mr. Schnarky, my uh, old th- the old uh, theater theater teacher from high school, yeah. talking about uh, talking to us in my directing class because I took one semester of that, mm-hmm. bombed horribly, and he was like, "Look, sometimes in the heat of the moment, we do something that is utterly ridiculous and stupid, <laughs> and it's funny, and it's okay to laugh." And I think what we're, what what, ha- what we're losing when we start sort of glomming onto a particular aesthetic for aesthetics case is we're losing the ability to have a complex moment mm. and to have a complex emotional moment because sometimes the best movies are ones that are deeply depressing but oddly funny at the same time. Yeah, and I think one of the like. That that loss comes from like it. If I were to armchair psychoanalyze the 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 impulse behind the grim dark aesthetic, it's a desperate need to be taken seriously. Exactly. And well, so it, it it sort of ladles on all the things that are are in a bin marked serious issues. <laughs> but in doing it's going that, fast, like folks, you want to buy it now, now, now. <laughs> right. <laughs> But but in doing that, yeah, it loses it loses reality in proportion to how afraid, how sort of brittly afraid it can come off of that kind of moment of of the the sort of ridiculousness and seriousness that sometimes goes hand in hand with with serious moments in our lived experience. Well, um, one of my favorite movies of all time, well, not of all time, but it's a movie that I saw four times in theaters. And I find myself watching it two or three times a year. Mm. Is the uh, Tom McCarthy uh, Spotlight? Oh yeah. Which I don't know if you've seen. Oh, that's on Netflix now, isn't it? It is. I don't know if it's on Netflix. I have it on Amazon. I, I own it, so I just watch it whenever. But it might be on mm. Netflix. Um, but it's a very. It deals with a very dark subject matter. And yeah, whenever I feel like I'm in a dark place, I watch it because. There's a soothingness about it. And mm. they deal with the subject matter very seriously, but there's humor involved. And they understand the gravity of what they're dealing with. But people are allowed to react in different ways. And there's a and just because this is grandiose thing happening, people don't stop being human. Yeah. Like when they're divvying up assignments and they're like how are you coming along with Kirbidian? It's like, Kirbidian is a pain in the ass. And his boss says, you can be a pain in the ass. And Rachel McAdams' <laughs> character goes, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, now now I'm just like, now this has got me spinning off in other directions of like other journalism movies that do similar <laughs> things. Because one of my favorite go-tos is, is uh, All the President's Men. Right. Which also has that kind of, like, not in the same way, I think. It's... Uh, but but still, like those those moments of just like ah, uh, you know, you guys are you guys are pains in the ass. Can you just stop? <laughs> no. 
Well, this bleeds into um, the other idea we talked about. Are we becoming less able, like, as an audience? Do you feel like there's a sort of immaturity eking out into the audience with what's what we are allowing to become hits? Because one of the hmm. great lies that nerd culture sold the rest of the world was if you take if you start making treating comic books seriously, we're gonna get a whole new world of characters and we're gonna get a whole new buffet of story ideas and representation <laughs> and everything and what we got is just uh, basically the same stories told over and over. Yep. And when someone well, you know, did, you know, tries to tell a new story, like say Valerian, problematic and issue like and narrative just, issues just, they may have no one went, yeah. to, went to see it. Yeah, Never no mind that all those same things were said about Batman v Superman, and everyone and the mother went to see it. Right, because it because it had a it had a sticker on it that said right. Batman v Superman. Exactly. Um, <laughs> not to mention they're like, oh, we know those things. Well, I think, and I think some of the some of the at least the ones that I value as far as being the better Marvel movies have actually happened after we've realized we don't have to take these things so seriously. Right. Like one of the one of the things that I see uh, one of the things that has me excited about the next Thor movie, aside from the fact that I love all the Thor movies forever, and I would <laughs> fight anyone who doesn't, uh, is uh, the, the Ragnarok looks like it's it's been learning the lessons that like Guardians of the Galaxy has allowed to be learned right. as well. Like, you oh, can. okay, we can we can step further away from just the the dude punch fights and maybe like have primary colors visible and <laughs> and uh, and revel in the strangeness more and realize that this is weird and odd and that that can be used to tell interesting stories like I still I will still go to the mat saying that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is one of my favorite stories about family. Oh it is. It's absolutely just one of the better like just dealing with trauma in general, emotional trauma. Yeah. It's a like it's about it's about trauma and and like what what a family actually is versus what we are what we what we think and are driven to want family to mean and right. like those you, you don't you don't see that happening as much in like your Captain America movies and I love right. the I love the Captain America movies as what they are but the Captain America movies are pulp they're not new right uh, they're really well done pulp the first one was great old school pulp the second one was great modern espionage pulp. And Civil War was just comic book pulp on right. screen, uh, and that's fine, and that's that's entertaining for what it is. I I love it as as much as the next corporate whore, but um, <laughs> but yeah, but there's there's a serious lie to the idea that like just reaching for the comic book stuff in like initially is enough that that's bringing new stories because it a hundred percent isn't right because we're still <laughs> going to the things that we find familiar, right. And I get that that also has to do with a lot of just, like, in terms of, like, how much money, the disposable income we have and the trek going to the movies and versus what we can get online and all that. I understand yeah. that. But it does also feel like we're getting, it's harder and harder for things to be multi-genre because people are starting to be, like, not be able to look at a movie and go, you know, I don't, I don't think that was meant to be serious. I think they were in on the joke. Mm. Um, for example, a movie that just came out, uh, Halle Berry movie, Kidnap. Mm. It's basically just a pulp movie. Single-minded, pulpy, wonderful, exploitative trash. And it's fantastic. Right. And you have a lot uh, of... I like, that we, I like that we're at a point where we don't, we're not necessarily using trash uh, pejoratively. No, no, I no. Like, 
I like if good a, trash. If a movie's just, if that's all the movie's aiming for, if it's long, as long as it's, basically as they say, it's exactly as advertised, that's fine. Right. It's like, it's, let's be clear, kidnap is not a metaphor for anything. <laughs> anything at all. <laughs> but the lot of people going, this movie's trash, it's silly, it's stupid, it, d- it doesn't try to be anything, I'm like, yeah, it's not trying to. And yeah, that, 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 sort of, that, that weird sort of almost like moralizing edge that right. some like critical spheres have is what like movies, there is no responsibility to be about something right. in making a movie. Like if you want to make a movie that is just a story about what it is surface level about, go forth, go forth and do it well. As long as it's done well, we won't care. And the reason why Kidnapped works is because cinematically they gear you up and they uh, they play with you and they get you excited. And that's fine. That's exactly what a movie should do sometimes. Yeah. And uh, let's like say that, like, um, movie came out a while ago, Girl on the Train. They were like, oh my oh, god. Oh yeah, I remember this. Uh, Tate Taylor, uh, Emily Blunt. And they're like, oh my god, this movie is so stupid and melodramatic. But yeah, and it knows it's melodramatic. If you pay attention, it tells you it knows it's melodramatic, and it's fine. It's fun as hell. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like there's, there's the this moment, weird mm. Emily Blunt's character. We hear her in a monologue, and then we see her sip from a sippy cup, <laughs> and then we hear her talk out loud, slurring her words, and we realize she's drunk as fuck. <laughs> but in her in her mind, she's sober. I'm like, this movie's going to be amazing. Because she's drinking alcohol from the sippy cup. Oh my god! And she's a drunky McDrunkelson Columbo type detective. It's beautiful. Uh okay. Well, you've 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 equated it to Columbo, so now I know that you hold it in esteem. Uh, I will have to. I because that that's one I missed. I will have to go back and watch that then. But like this idea that because a movie doesn't advertise what either a it advertises what it is on its sleeve or it makes you look at it critically in a way. Then maybe mm. it's like pretending to be something else, and you just have to pay attention. Like I'm finding, like I know the audiences have always been a little bit unable to figure that out. That's fine. Sometimes a movie gets rediscovered. I understand that, but it feels like yeah. I mean, hell, that, that's that's the history of art in a nutshell, right, right there. Like the your like an audience sometimes doesn't exist when the work exists. Like that happened right. to Moby Dick of all things. Well, and also, <laughs> this is also we we exist in a time where the audience reaction is instantaneous, and so we see it. Yeah, and sometimes like the these... desire to be heard about something overcomes the desire to just think about what you just saw. Yeah, especially considering how quickly, uh, like, narrative momentum about a piece of media will form, right. and so then it, it becomes co- like it, it, like anything else online, it, it it very quickly accelerates toward extremes. Uh, so, like, the conversation cuts out a lot of that. Like, yeah, but what if I just want to see? Uh, pulp mystery. Right. Well, and this leads into um, something else that that's, that's always existed, but it's become more vocal, and that's the idea of fandoms, which the site has found Sorry, you, you, you cut out there. Oh, sorry. Um, the, the, the idea of fandoms has always existed, and it's always right. been around. But now with the internet, they sort of coalesce, and the site is founded on fandoms, and yeah. the idea it's, of fandoms. It's, uh, I think it might be in the name. Right. But... <laughs> We, especially with comic book movies, so it's just I'm going to defend it because I like the character. Yeah, and I'm like, well, that's nice. This movie still sucks. 
Right. I have to, and I have to fight that sometimes too. Right. Uh, often, especially since, as I've mentioned before, Superman is what I have instead of your mortal gods. Well, um, I remember vividly when I saw Man of Steel and I called you and I said this movie sucked. You said yes, and I told you everything I hated about it, and you said I agree with everything. I still love it because I love Superman. Like, I, yeah, I still <laughs> like. I'll go. I, I go back and I find like. <laughs> I have a way that I watch that movie now so that I can get the maximum enjoyment out of it. <laughs> like the, the, the Thaddeus cut of... You view as valid criticism. Right. Like the Thaddeus cut of Man of Steel is you cut out the entire bit that shows where, uh, how Jonathan Kent died. <laughs> uh, and just like, yeah, he died and he didn't want me to be Superman. But you don't see how he died. It's just, it's left. Uh, right. <laughs> that scene in the graveyard just uh, proceeds without the flashback. And then uh, Zod doesn't uh, come back and fight Superman. Like, the, he, he dies in the ship crash, and that's it. And, like, gets sucked in the Phantom Zone, the end. And really... Like, and committing I, genocide was the end. <laughs> and what I see really is... And I'm not even really attacking Phantoms. Let's be clear, I'm not. What I'm really... Oh, because sort of, uh, I can actually... I, I'm prepared to do that. Maybe we should do that later. <laughs> I, I'm sort of, sort of reacting against what I see largely as what I call the wines of white folks. <laughs> in which we say as two of the whitest men <laughs> two of the whitest straightest men to walk this earth hello all. <laughs> um but no like a lot of that is what i see is just sort of basic sort of toxic misogyny sort of manifesting itself as fandom yeah uh, i mean that was obviously the, like in the 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 Gamergate sort of logic being applied right. outside of just video games, but across. Uh, and I think the the thing about that is that that's that's been an undercurrent of fandom for a long time. It's just now it's 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 not okay, but now it's okay to say this publicly. Right. Again, it's, it's like again because we have the internet, these things are more vocal. It's not that they right. haven't always existed. It's just now they tend to the loudest voices rise to the top. And no one is louder than a white boy who thinks he's been offended. <laughs> right. Uh, and it's and it's such a drag because I see this it, like the sometimes I don't want to talk about the things I like because I know what the fandom is like. Because <laughs> I'm a big fan of, for example, uh, Rick and Morty. I really yeah. enjoy Rick and Morty as a as a television program, but so much of its fandom are self impressed like edgy cynical jackasses <laughs> who think that they are already as smart as Rick is right and that there's not and that and who seem to miss all of the show's bleak commentary on like that character himself not only that but from what I've seen of Rick and Morty Rick's not a nice guy no he's terrible and the show like and I think part of this is also like the show is growing up in a way that I'm I'm curious to see whether it's fandom accepts Right. Because the the third season started just recently, and it's very like a lot of it has been sort of deconstructing the because Rick being the the first title character, like he does all, he do, he did and said most of the cool stuff, even though he's an asshole the whole time. Right. Uh, and a lot of the the current season, the most recent episode involved like, uh, the the B plot of the episode was a family therapy session that he was skipping out on to go on like a sci fi Taken <laughs> movie adventure, and. And the the plots like coalesce like back together with this like really interesting point about you know uh, avoidance of emotional connection among family members and like the consequences of that and all this and it's just like 
it's got a great a plot action thing going on, and I wonder how much like certain kinds of fandom are going to ignore what the two <laughs> plots together are saying. Right. Well, that's very, like it's one of the things where like sometimes I'm wondering if maybe it's because now I'm listening to people, but like the idea of what a narrative narrative context, what a narrative function is, seems to be going over people's heads. Hmm. Um. Atomic Blonde, which is a great movie, mm. has a subplot in which a character dies. Which, well, spoiler, almost everyone dies in Atomic Blonde. It's that movie. <laughs> it's very nihilistic, but it's fine because that's the mo- it fits what the story's trying to do. Right. But there is a, the character who dies happens to be Sophia Batella's character, who is a woman who involved in a woman-loving woman relationship ah. with Charlize Theron. Contextually, historically, that's bad. Queer mm. characters have a higher mortality rate right, than the... almost any other characters. Simply because... I, 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 feel like the, I feel like there's a name for this phenomenon, but I'm forgetting what it is. Uh, there but... is, and I'm blanking on it too. Again, two white straight guys. <laughs> Damn it. Um, but And part of me was bothered because I, I hated to see that. And, but then I was like, well, because the only sort of LG, LGBTQIA character in the movie died. No, 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 she didn't, because Charlize Theron is one. Right. And she didn't die for the man. She died because had this been a heterosexual love story, heterosexual movie, that character would have died as well. No matter hmm. how, like, how that relationship is played, gender-wise or sexuality-wise, that character dies based on what this movie is, based on the narrative trope set up. So it's it's one of those things where the movie itself is consistent and solidly put together, but the context of when it is coming out, it still has to sort well, of like, deal like I understand with it. those who would be aggrieved by it, and I understand not wanting to see the movie because of it. Right. But like those also, those are those are not unjustified responses. Right, but it's also like I, we, characters should be in some kind of peril. Dramatic. It's it's one of those things where it's it's it's. I don't know. It's it's one of those ongoing philosophical problems of like, how do you solve this problem while still w- without like forbidding doing something for life? Like, because you can't. It's not like we could stop making all movies that like do that. Because right. that, in its own way, would be like weird and pandering and and whatever. But like, right. just the the idea that that because and I think that's that's one of the important things to consider is because of how this is often used as a sloppy storytelling mechanism exactly. and as a, a terrible like waste of, of how people are, are represented it it lowers the quality of good movies right and it also lowers the faith between the audience and the storyteller right and I think because of how sloppily some of these tropes have been used, it's not so much that maybe the the audience is immature, but the faith has been damaged. Right. Uh, and, I think that's a good way of putting it. And also, and I think also, uh, last year there was what's known as uh, the Red Spring. Mm. Red slaughter. Red, oh, sorry, the Red Slaughter. Spring slaughter. Spring slaughter. Because <laughs> on television there was an abnormal amount of queer deaths. Well, should I, I shouldn't say queer. I'm not in the community. LGBTIA plus deaths on television. Like an immense amount. And they just started stacking up because, and 
storytellers seem to be taken aback by the outrage that these, these deaths were. Right. The reactions to them. And it was because when you see it happens enough time to you, for and it, and when these deaths happen, they're usually largely done for the white male character. Yeah, and or I mean, it's also tell those... say, "Well, we needed some drama for this episode." It's like there are other ways to get drama than to kill a character. <laughs> right, and and I mean, the there's a lot of uh, you know uh, the the writer's response is clearly one of those things where it's. I think a good example, uh, you know, a good example of what privilege actually <laughs> means, which is you get to not consider that perspective. Exactly. Like that, that, that gets to be something that wouldn't occur to you because it does like, because you're not in that context. You don't have to, you're, you're not obliged to consider it. Right. Well, <laughs> and also... the callousness that that can cause. <laughs> exactly. And I think there is a sort of callousness, to how some of the storytellers react to criticism. Mm. I forget the director's name. I get Matt Reeves and the other famous Matt mixed up. Mm. Uh, the Is guy who did Kingsman. Uh, Matthew Vaughn? Matthew, I get Matt, Matt Reeves and Matthew Vaughn mixed up all the time. But mm. there was criticism... Basically all Matt. people named Matt look the same to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's genetics of Starwin, folks. So, <laughs> um... When Kingsman came out, there was a bit of a backlash about um, the last, the final scene. The the end joke? The yeah. rear end joke, as it, it were? Yeah. And which, for those of you who don't know, there was uh, a woman who needs to be rescued. And she says, if you stop them, I'll give it. Basically, she promised them anal sex. And yeah, so that's it basically saves the world. Simply put. He basically, and the last scene is him receiving his reward. And there were some women who rightly were like, this is kind of egregiously offensive. And he replied with, oh, they're just a bunch of bloody feminists. Of course he did. And I was like, you know, I could have given you the benefit of the doubt, but then when you use that word as an insult. Yeah. Uh, the the I, I sometimes wonder if, along with learning how to read, we need to also have rudimentary classes in learning how to conceptualize critique. Exactly. Well... <laughs> And this also goes to, like, not so much that the, has, does it seem like audience are getting more, less adult, but some of the artists seem to be really unable to, like, fathom that someone might not like their work. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess well, all also... artists are sensitive, I get that, but there is, like, do you have to have some sort of, like, wherewithal, like, okay, there will be some people who will irrationally hate my work. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of it is also just like it's uh, it's a consequence of of like this. The structure of social media encourages particular types of behavior. And one of those is immediacy, right. uh, which is one of the reasons why I, I never managed to do very much on social media, because <laughs> I am being someone who who wrote, who always wrote things uh, before, like texting and, and twittering and, and various other sorts of things made it something that now oh now everyone writes fine uh <laughs> i never i never lost the paranoia of not saying what i think i'm trying to say right and so i don't do well on social media and therefore and i don't not to say like i i like fail at it but i just i can't do it right because social media demands immediate response well, like that's what that. it wants there seems to be also a, like a sort of lack of understanding that people will put their foot in their mouths. 
Yeah. I've done it constantly. It's basically the only language I speak. Well, and the, the problem is that that's a double-edged sword because we, we have to find a way to both allow for people to put their foots in their mouths and cope with that like grown-ups, right. but also to not be overly forgiving just because that's how we are to people who are in privileged positions in uh, society. Well, people uh, who happen to create things that we like. Yeah. Like, I, uh, just because I like the works of Joss Whedon doesn't mean that Joss Whedon can't, like, shouldn't be, you know, nudged for saying and doing dumb things sometimes because right. he is a human. Right, and that's the thing, like, the sort of, like, what being a grown-up means is, mm. as I get older, I, my love for Inherit the Wind only grows. Yes. God, because yes. I, I, I see it less and less as a parable of McCarthyism and fanaticism. And more and more about dealing with people, how to live in a world that doesn't agree with me. Mm. Or to, how to deal with a world that challenges me constantly. And yeah, what it, what, it means, what it means to exist in a world that has many different separate communities with very, often very differing um, perspectives on the world. Well, there's a line from Inherit the Wind, like... What passes for Christianity in, um, here doesn't necessarily pass for Christianity everywhere else. Yeah. In which is, it speaks to something that I think is lost. Like, geography, whether or not we admit it, still plays a large part in how we are. Right. You're, you're, who, you, who you happen to be around is a massive influence. Well, not uh, just that, but like, you if have you're no from a small of... town, small town oh, yeah. ways sneak into you. Um, there's a stubbornness sometimes, there's a sort of like, yeah, there's like traits that come from not being used to a fast-paced, a uh, is this is this Is this you low-key uh, commentating on what it's like to live in L.A. having been in Missouri for the long time? No, no. It's just <laughs> in terms of like acknowledging that the geography and where you're from does play somewhat of a part. And indeed, yeah. even like the the sort of... We're going to touch on something really, really complex, and we don't have time to talk about it. But because, like, what happens if you're born in a particular place, and you are a certain type of person or geared to certain types of lifestyles, and that place does not accept you, and how you have to navigate that existence? Yeah, both socially and physically. Right. So what we've learned is... Things are tough. All right. What we've learned is things are complicated and easy answers are few and far between, <laughs> but that we should probably try to do better at everything all the well, time. And also, I think just because the answer isn't easy doesn't mean we stop talking about it. That's the thing that annoys me the most about the internet is uh, I think that, that like, well, it's, it's the, 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 the need for easy answers and the bullheadedness at, like, dealing with the fact that the answers aren't easy. Or the fact that just because I have a criticism means I don't want to see this ever again. God, I yeah, I don't I don't know where the I don't know where that thought came from. <laughs> like it's prevalent too. Like I, uh, one last anecdote. Uh, uh, I a buddy of mine and I were were both teaching um, uh, freshman composition classes at a, a state university, and. Before, like, our classes started around the same time. Uh, no, wait, no, wait. My class ended, and he taught in the room after me. So I was, I was BSing with him. And we were talking about Star Wars. And we were both huge Star Wars fans. And everything we were saying was about something we hated. 
we were just taking a bat to Star Wars in our free time. And one of the students was like, wow, you guys must really hate Star Wars. And we were both taken aback by this. <laughs> How we're dare both, you, sir? We're like, what? I knew who Mon Mothma was before you did. How dare you? <laughs> just because you make fun of Star Wars does not mean you hate Star Wars. It often means you love Star Wars. Uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't know. Uh, criticism is maligned in ways it need not be. Well, not only that, like, I wouldn't be talking about something as much as I did if I didn't love it. If I really don't care about something, eh, not going to be something I espouse that much on. Yeah, so I think I think at the end of the day, from our, our beginning, the, the beginning topic being uh, adult and mature, is that, well, it's not an aesthetic, it means uh, welcoming complexity. Right. Welcoming complexity, not being afraid of complexity, and not being afraid to be wrong. And this is and this is on the the artists and the audiences side. This is not a this is not a one sided deal. Right. This is uh, a, it is a re- it is a relationship. Right. And this is something that requires both sides to be willing to engage on this. Uh, and there, we, we, we found our easy solution. It's to welcome complexity. <laughs> um. Well, that was easy. We're genius. <laughs> Bow down and worship us all. Uh. Um, so, sadly, it's that time again where we have to say goodbye. Um, be sure to listen and rate us on iTunes. Um, the two people who are listening. Steve Unless you don't and... like us, in which we don't do that. <laughs> if you don't like us, don't worry. I guarantee you the amount of hate that we have for ourselves far outweighs the hate you that you never, have. You can never touch me to my armor of hatred. <laughs> um, like I said, we'll look forward to for us on iTunes, be sure to check out the other Fundamental podcasts, such as the Fundamentalist, Ladies First, Unabashed Book Snobbery. Um, I don't have anything to add. Um, I have my social media stuff, but basically, check those out. My Facebook under Jeremiah O. Sherman, J. Sherman Fiction, Thad. Um, basically, I, I exist on social Amish. media, but I, but I actively hide. So, if you if you feel like finding me, you may you may. Maybe successful. You really want to find fat to find fat. That's what I'm, all I'm going to say. <laughs> all right. Say goodbye, Fed. Farewell.